The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had wrapped around around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put, in, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John, for reading that passage for us. It's uh, the beginning of this text we're going to be in actually for several months, or for a couple months now, uh, this passage about the Last Supper. And uh, it starts off with this foot washing and Jesus serving his disciples. I want you to imagine John, the apostle. And I want you to imagine John writing his gospel. So he's an old man. By the time John writes his gospel, his gospel's the last of the four to be written. Uh, he's near the end of his life, and he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's writing as a person, and he's remembering. And he's reflecting back on a period of time in his life that has concluded in some ways, even though it's kind of spun him forward into everything that his life would be after that. There's a, an author that I love named Frederick Buechner who has a, uh, a book 
um, that has this line in it that I've always loved. And the line is, an old man's thoughts are long. And I love that image. And I think about John, this disciple, this friend of Christ, thinking about these days that he had with Jesus, these months, these years. And he devotes a lot of time in his gospel to one meal, this, this meal in the upper room. And I want you to imagine him just thinking about that room and what it was like and going around the table. And in fact, what I want to spend our time doing this morning is I want to introduce you to the 13 men at the table. So you have 13 men in a room. There are people who had been together for three years or so, give or take. And those years had been full of wonder and instruction and teaching and wisdom and struggle and honor, rejection, miracles. And they were about to eat their last supper together. And as this is about to happen, Jesus wraps a towel around his waist and fills a basin with water and makes his way around the room, washing the feet of each of these men that he called to be his disciples. And so it's one final demonstration of his deep love for them, friends and enemy alike, and his passion to serve them with his life. One final demonstration before the ultimate demonstration of his love on the cross. And this washing is just a foretaste of what he was about to do to make them clean. And so I want to go around the room and remember the men who are gathered for this Last Supper. And we're going to spend several, 13, 14 weeks in this room. And so let's get to know them a little bit. We're going to end with John, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on him. But I want to quickly go over the others. Um, And we're going to begin with John's brother, James. So James, we read in Acts 12, was the first of the disciples to be martyred. He was martyred by Herod. Um, James had a nickname. Jesus had given James and John, actually, a nickname together. He called them the Sons of Thunder, um, which is funny. It's meant to be funny uh, because they have this fiery kind of personality. And, they, and James, James was the one where Jesus and the disciples came into a town, and the town was not hospitable toward them. And James, with John, he's, he's always with John, James said to the Lord, do you, um, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and burn this place to the ground? <laughs> Sons of thunder. You see something of that in his fiery personality, the way that he just moved through. Next to James or somewhere at the table, I'm going to say next to, I don't know what the order was, except we do know where John sat. Um, but next to him is Matthew or Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew is the person that we meet um, working at his tax collector's booth. He writes about this in the gospel bearing his name. We know that Jesus met Matthew when Matthew was working as a tax collector because Matthew tells about that. He tells on himself. 
And being a tax collector, he had this reputation, uh, which was legitimate in many ways, of being a thief and a cheat and a bit of a traitor to the people of Israel because he was taking money from his own people and giving it to the Roman Empire, who had occupied their land. And so when Jesus and Matthew met, Jesus went over to Matthew's house for dinner. So their relationship started with a dinner, and it now concludes at least this part, the earthly ministry part of their relationship, ends at a table all these years later. At that first dinner, Matthew had invited other tax collectors and sinners because it's kind of this, this necessary fraternity that exists in the world even still, this, this collection of the people on the fringe of society who are looking for others, and when they find each other, they, 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 it's, it's hard to find community when that's, when that's your story. And that's who comes to that first meal. And here at the last one, Matthew understands that it's still a table full of sinners. Just his understanding of what it means to be a sinner is evolving and changing. And then you have James the younger, son of Alphaeus. So another son of Alphaeus, which, which makes you wonder if James the younger is Matthew's younger brother. Um, we don't really know. We're not given that, so we kind of have to speculate because they're both the sons of Alphaeus. But James, the younger, well, you know James the younger, right? No, you don't. And the reason you don't know James the younger is instructive and it's interesting and it's relevant for us. Why? Why is that relevant for us? Because he's one of the disciples that we know the least about. And the truth is, by the way, we really don't know much about any of these people. Like, you might say, well, we know a ton about Simon Peter. Kind of. But how do you really know a lot about a person? We have some vignettes and some stories about the lives of these disciples. But we don't know their rhythms. We don't know their loves, their dreams, their hopes, their sorrows, their destructive tendencies. We get little glimpses that, that kind of tell us about their disposition and snippets of conversation they have and maybe some family connections, but we don't really know much about them. And what I love about the implications of that for somebody like James the Younger is all we really know about him is that his life was joined to Jesus, and it was joined to Jesus because Jesus called him to be an apostle. Jesus wanted James the Younger at this table. He was a follower of Jesus because Jesus wanted him to be. And what I love about that is you may feel like I am unknown. I'm a hard person to know. I wish there were people who knew me. Christ knows you. James the Younger is, is the stranger you sometimes feel like. But remember, he has a seat at the table of the Lord. Then you got Philip, Philip of Bethsaida. Philip was the third disciple to follow Jesus, the third disciple that Jesus called after Andrew and Peter. Um, he knew the scriptures and he considered Jesus through the filter of what he knew from the scriptures and he came to very enthusiastically believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, in fact, 
Once he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, he wanted everybody else to know that he had found the Messiah, which worked out swimmingly for him because that was his calling now, right? Was to bear witness to Jesus. One of the first people that he went to to tell, I have found the Messiah, was another man sitting at the table, Bartholomew, or Nathaniel is the other name that he's called by. Uh, Bartholomew was a person who carried himself with a kind of a smug superiority, at least in terms of what we see in the scriptures. You know, probably if you've read your Bible, that there's a place in the New Testament where the statement is made about Jesus of Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? What you may not know is that statement was uttered by one of Jesus' disciples, one of his apostles, one of the 12, and it was Bartholomew. Bartholomew was the one who said, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. He was wrong. Right? That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> We're working on it. It's New Year. We'll get there. <sighs> we got to get in our groove. Okay, so he's there, and <laughs> but Bartholomew... Philip goes to Bartholomew and he says, I have found the Messiah. It's this Jesus of Nazareth. And, Jesus, and Bartholomew shrugs. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip says, you've got to meet him. Just come. Just meet him. And so Bartholomew approaches Jesus and Jesus handles him. Like just pitch perfect. He handles him. Because Bartholomew is walking up and Jesus, as he approaches, announces, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And what he's doing is he's winsomely calling out Bartholomew for, one, disrespecting Jesus' hometown, and two, announcing it with such impunity. He's saying, basically, behold, here's a person who says what's on his mind. And Bartholomew responds by saying, I'm sorry, have we met? Do we know each other? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, what I love about that statement is how cryptic it is. Because I saw you under the fig tree. The way Bartholomew responds to Jesus saying that is he believes Jesus is the Messiah. So there's stuff left out that we don't get to know about what Jesus meant or what Bartholomew was doing under the fig tree. Like, we don't know, but we know that when Jesus says this, it completely disarms Bartholomew. And, he's, and he treats it as a supernatural occurrence. And he says to him, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And that's when Jesus says to Bartholomew something that will be true for all of the apostles, but he says, Bartholomew, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. And now Bartholomew is seeing actually something very good that has come from Nazareth and he is washing Bartholomew's feet. Then we have Thaddeus, or Jude, is the other name he goes by. We don't know much about him either, other than that he was the son of a man named James. But he was one of the twelve, which means he was one of the ones who was sent out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel when Jesus sent his apostles out to minister and to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he was a full partner in this mission, and this mission put Thaddeus in situations where he saw the gospel work in people's lives. And he also saw many reject not only the message that he proclaimed where he had to shake the dust off of his feet, but he saw people reject him for bringing this message in the first place. 
Next to Thaddeus, you have Thomas or Didymus, the twin. We often call no Thomas as doubting Thomas, which is not fair uh, because he questioned and he was a person who wanted to move through the world by taking stock of information that was in front of him. And who among us, if, we have been, if we're told, hey, this person that died is alive again, wouldn't say, I find that hard to believe, right? Like it makes sense that he would say, I'm going to need some evidence in order for me to get on board with what it is that you're saying. And we have that Caravaggio in the back of the room where he said, I need to put my finger into the wound in his side and touch the nail marks. And he did. But he wasn't just known for that. He was also somebody who was inquisitive. And so when Jesus said that he was going to prepare a place for his disciples, it was Thomas who asked, where will this place be? He he believed and he was like, okay, Tell me where this will be. And he was also brave. And we know this earlier because when Lazarus died, Jesus and the 12 were far away from Bethany where Lazarus lived. But the last time they had been in the area, the religious leaders wanted to stone Jesus. And so when Lazarus died, Jesus said, I'm going to Bethany. And it was Thomas who said to the other disciples, Let's also go, that we may die with him. Then you have Simon the Zealot. You know Simon the Zealot. So like James the Younger, Simon's descriptive surname, it's not a family name, it's just a description. It differentiates him from the other disciple, Simon, which is Simon Peter. Um, But Simon the Zealot had ties to a revolutionary sect of Idumeans who hoped to incite their people to expel Romans from the promised land. And they considered themselves at war with Rome. And so Simon joined this. He wasn't born into this sect. He joined it voluntarily, which means that Simon was probably the disciple who was most likely to steer the conversation to politics more than the others because he saw his entire world through the lens of its political climate. Now, everybody here either is or knows the type who's always just kind of taking it to politics. And so he's there. And then you have Andrew, who is Peter's brother and was originally, Andrew, a a disciple of John the Baptist. And then he became the first disciple that Jesus called. He and Peter, his brother, were both fishermen. And they were the first to hear Jesus say that he would make them fishers of men. And though Jesus called all 12 within a relatively short period of time, what's fascinating about Andrew was that he was already there when each of the others joined that band of apostles. And so he was kind of the upperclassman of the group. He was the one who was always there, the old timer, if you will. And he had this loyalty to John the Baptist. And then he had this fierce loyalty to Jesus, which shows this personal resolve that he had to be engaged in the proclamation of the gospel, this work. He was all in. Near him sits Judas, Judas Iscariot. And by the time Jesus takes Judas' feet in his hands and washes them, Judas has already struck a deal with the chief priests to hand Jesus over to be betrayed. And our text today includes this ominous statement 
that, quote, the devil already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. That's dark. That's heavy. It's, he's such a riddle, Judas. How did he become one of the 12? We don't really know how that worked. But he spent years in the company of Jesus and with the other 12 or the other 11. But he never loved Jesus. Imagine this now in this room. Jesus knows. He knows what Judas is going to do. And yet here he is washing his feet, just as he's doing with all of the others. Judas has opportunity to repent. Both Judas and the next disciple that we're going to move to become kind of the forefront of a lot of the story of the rest of the Last Supper, uh, Simon Peter. Simon Peter was the second disciple to follow Jesus right after his brother Andrew. Uh, Peter is um, a paradox. He's a hero. He's a mess. Um, there's one moment when he refuses to accept that Jesus has to die. And then the next moment he swears that if Jesus has to die, then he'll die with him. And then when Jesus is actually being handed over to die, he denies having ever met him. And personally, I find a lot of comfort in knowing that the Lord builds his church through people who are walking contradictions. Because I have not yet met anyone who isn't. There was one commentator who described Peter, citing the biblical data and the stories about him, he described him as this way, he's impulsive yet cowardly. He's hot-tempered yet tender-hearted. And he's insightful and he's dense. And I, well, I relate. And, and Peter was also somebody who was given a nickname by Jesus. His common name was Simon. And when, when Jesus asked the 12 who they thought he was, Simon was the one who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And at this, Jesus changed his name to Peter, which means rock, saying, upon the rock-solid foundation of this confession that you have made, that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I'm going to build my church. Which brings us to the, the host of the meal, Jesus of Nazareth. He's there. Part, part of the objective of this little exercise of asking you to imagine John as an old man thinking about that room and thinking about the men gathered around this table. Part of the reason that I wanted us to do this is to remember that this is a real thing that happened, this upper room last supper. That it was a real meal that took place on a real night and everything leading up to it and following it was just as real. And the host of that dinner was Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And sometimes you may wonder if any of this faith of yours is real at all. It just can feel like it's just 2,000 years removed from any kind of substantive encounter with Jesus. You may just feel like you are a million miles away and that it's all just kind of vapor. But this happened and Jesus is there and remember what it is that he's preparing the 12 to do, the 11. And that is to bring the gospel of his astonishing grace to your ears. Because that's how he, this passage ends. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send 
which is the men around that table, receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me, God the Father. So it's real what happened here. And that brings us back to John. And I'm just going to spend a few minutes with John. John's fascinating to me in the gospel. I've read the gospel of John maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 times in my life. And the more I read it, one of the fascinating things about John's gospel is he hides in plain sight in, in what he writes. And he does it throughout his entire gospel, and he does it in some ways that are very moving, like the way he drops little lines in or the way he refers to himself. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't say I. He talks in third person about the disciple whom Jesus loved. He does it five times in the gospel. And I want to show him to you. And he does it, the first time it happens is in chapter 13, actually the text right after this one, uh, where he's there sitting next to Jesus. This is where we learn that John was sitting close enough to Jesus that he was leaning against him. Because Jesus announces that one is going to betray, and Peter asks the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was sitting right next to Jesus, to ask him who it was. And then in 1926, as Jesus is hanging on the cross and dying, he looks at his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he gives them to each other. He says, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. And it's so tender, and it's so intimate, and it's so powerful that he forges this relationship that presumably continues until Mary dies. The two of them remembering Jesus together and loving each other as a family. And then in chapter 20, verse 2, there's Mary Magdalene comes to tell Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved that the tomb is empty. And Peter and this unnamed disciple race to the tomb and it's the disciple whom Jesus loved who got there first, which is another little bit of humor in John's gospel, where in the canon of scripture, in God's word, it is established as a historical fact that the disciple whom Jesus loved runs faster than Peter. It's, it's brotherly, it's playful, it's funny, but it's there. And then you have it in 21.7, where they're fishing after the resurrection, and they're in a boat together, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loves. And Jesus is on the shore and he's speaking to them. And it's the disciple whom Jesus loved who realized who it was. Hiding in plain sight. John is remembering the moment when he saw the Lord and he saw the scales fall from his eyes. He'd seen the risen Christ already. But in this moment, he has this moment, he remembers, he sees him and he's, it is the Lord. And Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore to fall at the feet of Jesus. And then he reinstates them. Imagine recalling and writing that memory. And then the last time also involves Peter. If you're noticing a trend, Peter is in most of these stories with the disciple whom Jesus loved because they were tight, they were friends, they were brothers in that sense. In, 20, in 2120, after Jesus has reinstated Peter, he's telling him that Peter is going to be martyred. And Peter looks at the disciple whom Jesus loves and says, what about him? To which Jesus says, don't worry about him. I'm telling you your story, not his story. 
But John is an old man. He's writing, he's remembering these things. He's referring to himself in this way. This is a little Easter egg that's telling us he's writing this after Peter had died. So he's thinking about his friend who's gone. Nearly every instance when he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, it involves Peter, who's this other close friend of Jesus. And what that makes me think about is it makes me think about gospel friendship. That gospel friendship runs deep. And these three were close. And they carried things for each other. Peter, John, and Jesus. And they knew each other. And they experienced things together. And I think in a way... John uses Peter as a kind of a surrogate to talk about his own affection for Jesus without making his gospel about himself. It's similar to how you could argue that the Lord of the Rings is about Sam Gamgee, right? That there's this person who's kind of always there. In literature, they call, there's a word for this, uh, it's called a deuteragonist. So you have a protagonist and the deuteragonist is like the second, per, the person of second importance. And the detail in which John tells the beauty of Peter's story conveys some of the beauty of his own experience with Jesus. But he writes about Peter as a kind of a modesty that's born out of this affection for his Lord. And there's this underlying confidence that he has in Christ's affection for him, which I think is why he focuses as much as he does on Jesus' interaction with Peter rather than himself, is he's wanting his readers to understand how loved he was. And so he talks a lot about how Jesus loved his friend. And that's beautiful. He wrote toward the end of his life as somebody who's looking back on the past with perspective. And he's looking ahead to the future with kind of an unquenchable hope. And you see this in the way that he opens his gospel, this perspective and hope, because he doesn't open with a nativity story. He goes with a callback to creation itself. The first words of John's gospel are in the beginning. And then he makes this proclamation. He says, in him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. An old man's thoughts are long, and he's writing about how the light, how the darkness has not overcome the light, all the darkness he has seen. And you see this perspective and this hope, even in the way John writes about this dinner and opens the story. Because he talks about being touched by Jesus. He talks about being served by his Lord. He remembers these things. You see the affection coming through and how he even sets up this passage. Because what he doesn't say is before the feast of the Passover, Jesus gathered his disciples in an upper room, picked up a towel and a basin and began to wash their feet. That's not what he says. What he says instead is he says before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, hiding in plain sight, he loved them to the end. And John's at the end. 
The more I read John's gospel, the more it seems that John isn't just telling us that he loved Jesus, but in a way he's telling us he misses Jesus. And I know that's a complicated thing to say because he had the revelation and Jesus, I'm sure, was present in John's life in ways that we can't fathom. But we're human beings and we remember eras of our lives with fondness and with grief. And I imagine John as an old man writing these words about being served by Jesus and he doesn't write like a reporter, but he writes like a recipient of the love and service about which he writes. And it'll take your breath away if you let it. Because he's hiding in plain sight. He's not just a reporter of information. He's somebody who understands that to tell the story of who Jesus is, and this is true for any of us, to tell the story of who Jesus is, is to tell the story of how Jesus loves you. There's no other way to tell the story of Jesus accurately without it being telling the story of how he loves us. John lived the rest of his life after this upper room, serving the church with this calling as an apostle. And we know details of what happened here and there, but much of the daily existence of the apostles, including John, isn't recorded except that when we come to the end of his life, this gospel is what he leaves. This gospel is what he writes. It's the story that he tells. And at the end of that gospel, he says this, these things are written, including the story of the Last Supper. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so my question for us as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and as we get deeper into this sermon series that I want all of us to take up here at the beginning of this new year is who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? What is it that you believe? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to gather here on this first Sunday of a new year and the way that you use the passage and the marking of time uh, to give us an opportunity to reset, to assess, look back, reflect, hope, grieve, all of those things. And Father, I ask that you would um, give us insight into the depth of your love more and more this year as we study this meal where you have your friends, your disciples, and your betrayer in a room before you go to the cross and the way you love them and care for them and instruct them and prepare them and serve them and feed them and nourish them and sing over them. Uh, Father, we ask that you would deepen our affections for you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.